There is this community of doctors and nurses and paramedics that have been really, really brought down by the pandemic, but there are people out there to listen to them and talk with them. And not just about medical stuff, but sometimes you just need to talk about normal life rather than anything else. Welcome to Participate. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Dr. Julie Kane. On the podcast, we'll be speaking to Dr. Andrew Tagg about Don't Forget the Bubbles, an innovative community for physicians that is changing the way we work and learn together. So, Julie, we've seen a lot of incredible examples of healthcare professionals and organizations using communities of practice as a way to connect and share knowledge and most importantly, to support one another and in particular during this pandemic. Why do you think this approach has been so successful for healthcare professionals? So I've been thinking a lot about this and particularly because of an example that really struck me that I heard over the summer. And it was about a group of physicians in Georgia that worked in the Emory Hospital System. And there are five campuses throughout the metropolitan Atlanta. And they were just overwhelmed by COVID. And they just did not understand what they were seeing. There was not a lot of research out. They were trying to learn whatever they could about what had happened in New York. But regardless, they were just seeing mortality rates that were just something they had never experienced, certainly with the traditional flu. That's obvious in terms of what we've seen. So these doctors just jumped on a text string across these campuses and started to share their stories. And over the course of months, they just were like, I'm seeing this guy, I'm seeing this woman, I'm seeing this older person, I'm seeing this younger person, sharing stories, sharing their diagnosis, sharing how they were treating um, these patients. And what came out of this text string that went on for months is now new guidelines for the entire hospital system. And their mortality rate went from like 39% to less than five. And that was all because they were sort of sharing their learning. Yes, they were reading research mm. articles, but it was more on the ground. Here's what I'm hearing. Here's what I'm learning. And that really just struck me because I think it's working for healthcare professionals because that need is there. I mean, it's literally life or death in this situation. Their need to connect to one another, their need to share stories, their need to like someone help me, give me some ideas because I'm kind of at my wits end. So I think that motivation um, is so intense, particularly right now. But I do think we've seen these examples even prior to the pandemic. So I think there's just the nature of we're working in these settings and the community of practice approach where you learn together, you synthesize new knowledge, and then you put it into practice. I think it's the nature of that work, right? They have to constantly be reading and updating really intense scientific knowledge and then put it into practice literally the next day and that lives really are on the line in a lot of mm-hmm. cases. So I think that human motivation to learn from one another is really there. And obviously it's the structure of their work a little bit where they're not too siloed or they feel at least comfortable to be reaching out to other people um, that are not necessarily right in their hospital. The motivation is uh, incredibly strong to get it mm-hmm. right and to figure things out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, we we also see the results, obviously, when, mm-hmm. you know, you hate to say it, but like the pandemic has borne out the truth of what a real community can do when they decide they need to learn together. Yeah. 
So we're going to talk to Andrew Tag about how medical professionals leverage communities of practice for online connection and the importance of physician mental health, his community and their innovative approach to gathering and sharing knowledge is groundbreaking and inspiring. Have a listen. Like a lot of us, I had some struggles during my training. I really had no idea where to turn. I felt alone and my mental health took a dive. I don't think there's a magic solution to improving our well-being. Certainly not a yoga program nor a meditation class. Not even a kale and spinach smoothie. Not even one of those. But there is something we can all do. We can show up. Be genuine. Care. We can show our vulnerability and take off the emotional mask we wear to work. We can be human. We all have our own stories. We are not just cogs in the machinery of healthcare. It is okay to not be okay. We can talk about our struggles. And if we do this, we can make everyone just a little bit better. And when we come back, our conversation with Dr. Andrew Tag. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Andrew Tag is an emergency physician with a special interest in education and lifelong learning. He's the co-founder and website lead for Don't Forget the Bubbles with over 70 authors and more than 600 blog posts. This community has become an amazing resource for medical professionals all around the world. Welcome to the Participate podcast, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Mike and Julie. Good to have you. So, Andrew, when we first came across your work on Twitter, um, you were tweeting uh, a lot of posts about communities of practice in the medical field and in mental health. And you're the co-founder, like we said, of this really collaborative and inspiring organization, Don't Forget the Bubbles. So can you tell us a little bit about how this group came to be and its its community approach. So we started back in 2013. It was really just four of us who were studying for exams. We were junior doctors and we decided we needed um, a group of people who could study together, put on, combine our notes together. And we decided an online platform was the easiest way of doing it, seeing as that we were in disparate parts of Australia. And we grew from just four of us recording and saving notes together and to now are actually over 150 authors and over a thousand blog posts that we've managed to achieve over the last seven or eight years. And one of the things that we always wanted from the start was that we wanted it to be a huge collaboration, as you say. We didn't want to be doing all the work ourselves. We knew that we could learn so much more by combining interests and combining other people's interests in pediatrics and healthcare for children. And so we reached out to friends locally who said, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. We don't have anyone we can work with locally who can do something in my own hospital, but I'd love to get together in an online sort of virtual community to help study. And so we did that and we started sharing our notes online and created the website. And over time, we've sort of reached out to content experts. So now that we have all levels of sort of healthcare provider involved from medical students, nursing staff, advanced care practitioners, all the way for sort of the equivalent of attendings and fellows, 
getting involved, sharing their teachings, which they would normally only be able to give to a small group, especially now in sort of the COVID times when most teaching we're doing is virtual. You know, they would only be able to give it to a small group of six or seven people and thought, well, you know, why do that work for just such a small number of people when so many more could benefit from what you're actually teaching about? So we've essentially brought all those talks and that education online and we're sharing it to, you know, 1.5 million readers rather than just the six people that are in the room with you at the time. And so by doing that, we've got this little core group of people who are doing things and we've expanded then to be little, we're using essentially like a sociocracy model of little bubbles within our giant bubble. So we've got bubbles that concentrate on research and uh, writing papers together in their own small community. We've got bubbles within various levels of healthcare practitioners. So we've got groups of paramedics who want to get together who couldn't, know, couldn't didn't have a voice previously, or groups of medical students or groups that want to talk about physician and healthcare well-being. They're all sort of little sub-bubbles within the, the broader community. And then they feed up to us in a sort of content creation sphere, bring their ideas up to us, and then we disseminate that amongst all the, lar the, all the larger groups. So we use multiple online platforms to create that community now. So it's not just a static blog, but we've got, we're using, you know, other things like Slack and Trello and Discord and everything else to essentially create multiple communities that can get together without us. So it's not all linked in just to the four core of us who started it. So based on how you sort of talked about the the bubbles and how that started and sort of the background of it, it leads me to the next question and maybe some more specifics of, it really stood out to us how quickly DFTB collaborates and synthesizes new knowledge across various topics, as you described, and then gets that research out into the community so that it can then sort of bubble back up to the top, which I think, again, emphasizes the power of a community of practice approach. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you've seen that work. So I think a really good example is what we've done with the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a lot of information coming out of China right at the start of last year, but most of our my colleagues really didn't know what was going on in the world of pediatrics. And there was a lot of information online that was not as good as it could be, I think would be the best way of putting it. And we were hoping that our sort of national bodies, our colleges of pediatrics and emergency medicine would be able to get on board and be able to really give out some good quality information but they're kind of tied by bureaucracy and multiple layers of red tape trying to get something out there. So we decided what we would do amongst the, the sort of core group initially was to find all the data that was available. That was easy, there's only sort of eight research papers. We'd collate those and we'd then disseminate them online. That was an easy decision to make, but then as more and more data became available, we really found that we needed more people. So we reached out to our wider community and we had infectious diseases experts, pediatricians who are expert in immunization, pediatricians who are experts in statistics, who are more than happy to help us get this information out there because they knew it was really important. So we then were approached by the governing bodies that originally we wanted to provide the information for us, said, hey, it looks like you're doing an amazing job. We're doing something that we could never do as agilely as we could because, you know, there are multiple, many, many papers record, reported every single week. What we want to be able to do is get those papers as soon as they came out and put them in our database. And 
when you're tied to a nine to five office job, that just does not happen. But because we're across both hemispheres and multiple time zones, as soon as a new paper comes out, we're putting it into our database, sharing that out. And now with, we've pretty much linked every single piece of pediatric literature. So there are over about 750 papers in our, in our database. We're producing weekly updates, which are read throughout the world. And the data that we've managed to produce is a small, Nonprofit community has been referenced by the WHO um, in their information when they were talking about um, returns to school, for instance. And most of the, um, it's now a key resource for a large number of journalists who are looking to see what's going on in the world of pediatrics. But that wouldn't be possible if we didn't have lots of people talking to each other with a flattened hierarchy, realistically, because we've got lots of people of different sort of skill sets and been able to communicate both synchronously and asynchronously in a sort of virtual community. So just connecting some dots between talking about COVID physicians, I know I've heard, I'm sure we all have just about just the incredible mental stress. Obviously here in the US, it's been a disaster to say the least. Yeah. Um, and you know we're hoping to climb out of it this year, but I think there's going to just be um, irrevocable damage, I think on some health um, care professionals. And so thinking about your role as a physician and as an advocate for physician mental health, and, and that's really hard um, to really be thinking about both those things. So given the success of bubbles as a community of practice, both for mental knowledge, can you talk a little bit about just even that other side of your work around physician mental health and how this experience has impacted you and your practice? I think it's really important that when you've got a voice that you use it for as many ways as possible, sort of to promote well-being. We know that it's, although we say we're in a physical community when we go to work. We're not. When we come home, we're often on our own, and certainly more so when we've had to isolate. You don't get a voice, you don't get to talk, you don't get to share your experiences with people who've been through them. And your partners or family may not really understand. And I th I think it's really important that we recognise that you know, burnout is a huge problem amongst all med sort of, uh, medical professionals. We know that the incidence of you know, suicide and depression under mental health professionals is way up there compared to the general community. And part of that huge problem is the stigma about talking out about these things. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to leverage the platform that we had to be able to talk about these things. And again, encourage people, not so much to share their stories, to re realise that they're not alone, they're not isolated in that sort of, that place of darkness and that they can there are other people out there like them. So there is this community of doctors that re and nurses and, and paramedics that have been really, really brought down by the pandemic. But there are people out there mm -hmm. to listen to them and talk mm -hmm. with them. And not just about medical stuff, but sometimes you just need to talk about normal life rather than anything else. Right. And with people who understand, you know, I think it's very difficult for the lay public to understand that what we do sometimes there's a huge emotional burden in medicine that is really not talked about and we're very good at compartmentalizing so you go into work you tell someone that you know like i did a few months ago that their husband has died and you've got to go and tell their four kids who are under the age of 10 that their, their husband has died and you don't really think about what people you know no disrespect to the general public have no concept of what that is like and it's very easy to internalize that and just take that upon yourself but you need to be able to talk about it. So 
one of the things we try and promote with Bubbles is talking about sort of mental health and well-being. But we started doing running conferences a few years ago, really to bring that sort of virtual community together in a physical mm-hmm. location. And one of the things I was really keen on is making sure that we had the opportunity to speak about mental health, both the burden of mental health problems, but also strategies that people could put in place to be able to to sort of deal with them. And so we moved from initially sort of this virtual community to a physical community that has met in multiple sort of places around the world. And now we've, although we've moved apart again now as a virtual community once more, we've got these groups of people who are really happy to talk to each other, share things and get together, whether that's online or, you know, in the sort of virtual chatbot space. And so we've even had um, well-being seminars that we've run online for both the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, where we've got clinicians coming forward and telling about the challenges they're having in the workplace. And these are private spaces. So these aren't recorded. Mm-hmm. These aren't shared. You know, they're hidden behind par- passwords. But it means that people are seen. You know, you get a thousand people coming together really to share some of their own trauma. And, you know, it's, it's like a problem shared is a problem halved in some ways. People get that opportunity to talk and to listen. So what can we do about this? I guess there are those of you who have been in this deep, dark place. I want to remind you that there is help out there, that you can ask for help. It is okay to admit that you're feeling distressed, that you're not coping, that you're not happy. For those of you that have never been in this place but have known people who have, think about what I'm talking about when you go back to work next week. You see one of your junior colleagues making mistakes, coming into work late every day, looking stressed or tired, and actually have that conversation. Ask them if they're okay, and then be prepared to deal with the consequences. Because if we don't ask, you can't prevent anything. What would I say to myself? It's interesting hearing you talk, you know, from the position of a, a physician and and your perspective on on loss and and that mental health side because I, I think we're not um, we're certainly not appreciating the ma- I think Julie hit on it perfectly the massive toll that it's going to take on physicians and nurses and, and, and in the going forward um, and you've done a lot of inspiring really interesting presentations over the years around mental health um, and some of the advice you give in a 2017 pr- presentation kind of talks about a little bit about what you were just talking about ideas, like how it's important to challenge other people's ideas and expectations and normalizing health seeking, or just even asking, are you okay? And I'm curious how you've seen that represented in the communities that you've been working in and how you've seen that actually come out in the communities of practice, because I think it's one thing to say, you know, it's okay for you to not be okay. And I think it's one thing to say, it's okay to ask for help, but it's a lot different to actually, you know, do it. Yeah. And, and that's the difference between, um, you know, talking about it online and having a community of practice, I think. So maybe, maybe talk about that a little bit. I think one of the things to, 
important things is role modeling. So when you're in a position of power, as it were, then it's really important to, you know, walk the walk and actually role model what you're doing. And that's why I was kind of joking about that inability to say no is kind of a challenge in some ways, because, you know, you've got to be able to take this sort of step back sometimes. But, you know, I think one of the things I think that I talk about in some ways is that there's this huge disparity in between what we expect of someone from their physical health and their mental health. So it's okay to take a day off work because you've got diarrhea and you're going to talk about that. But it's not okay, apparently, to take work, a day off work because you're feeling depressed, sad, lonely. And, you know, the ability to make decisions in sort of critical states is actually just as affected in both sort of states. And we don't really talk about that side of things. And so it's by saying that, you know, out loud to this community that this is important to us, it really makes it easier. And we have challenges in, in medicine around things like sick leave in that doctors suffer from what's called presenteeism. We like to go to work because we feel we're indispensable. We feel that, you know, it's this sort of hero complex where we can go in, we can go and save the day. When realistically, most of us are just little cogs in a, the giant healthcare machine. And if I went to work tomorrow, or I didn't go to work, it, they would cope. It doesn't really make a difference. But we like to think we're, we're sort of this hero that's going to go in and save the day. And sometimes it's really important for to share stories with the community to let them know that this isn't always the case. And very much through our community, what we do is share stories rather than facts and figures, which really don't have that human face of what's going on and don't really help. That personal example of you've had the colleague that's, you know, fallen asleep at the wheel and crashed the car on the way home because they're not looking after themselves or the marriage that's broken up because people are committing too much time to work. Those are sort of the stories we get to share within our community. And one of the nice things about sort of these sort of virtual communities is that that person who may be shy and retiring and introvert and not feel comfortable sharing their, their story and their life in person is much more empowered to do it in a, in a virtual space. And so it's not always the person with the loudest voice that gets heard, it's that person with something to say. And I think that is one of the most powerful things about a virtual community is that everyone is the same and everyone gets a voice. And often those quiet voices get amplified because they're the, they're the people that are really doing the hard graft. They're the people, you know, the, the extroverts in the group will always win. They will always benefit whatever their space is at work because they will talk. But it's those sort of quieter people who are suffering who get their chance to share their stories that um, benefit so much more from that sort of virtual community. So how do you keep people engaged in your platform and how do you build an understanding and supportive environment for that peer learning that is so important right now in your profession? I think that's a really great question, Mike. I think one of the things it is a challenge sort of trying to keep people engaged, but also trying to produce the content. So one of the things that we decided right at the beginning of last year was that there are clinicians who are time poor, they've got so many commitments outside of that educational space that we would try and create some modules for them. So 
through the help of the University of London and the Royal London Hospital, we've created essentially a series of bespoke educational modules that you could pull off the shelf, read for like 15 minutes, and then give them to your learners for 30 minutes for two hours of educational product. And so that meant that we would free up their cognitive bandwidth to do other things. And so we've had, you know, like one of my hospitals, for instance, that I work at, for instance, has been using those for their weekly education sessions. That's meant that the clinicians that would normally be spending four, five, six hours of their own free time trying to create content, trying to read new research, trying to create even just like the simple slide decks and the handouts don't have to do that. And so by doing that work for them, and we've crowdsourced, essentially crowdsourced that information, then we're saving them time. And now that we've released that as a free product to people, we get feedback from the groups that have been using them, and we can use that for further reiteration, recycle, and go back and improve things. And from our point of view, you know, this is core knowledge that everyone has to learn from their textbooks. But by pu pushing it out there, we're making life a little bit easier for people. The other thing then we've decided to do is, okay, some people work, learn really well in these sort of small group scenarios. A lot of people don't. So we've started creating more YouTube content. So we, again, we've got a, a different platform that we're using to disseminate knowledge. And that's a, small, a different community that's looking at that. Or we're using our Facebook platform. And then, you know, there's a different group of healthcare providers that would use Facebook compared to Twitter or Discord or any of these other things. So we're trying to use multiple platforms to engage large groups of people. And you know, there's gonna be a Venn diagram overlap of, of people like me who are on every single platform possible. But then you might get your old professor who has no idea what social media is, but might be happy to just, you know, read the newsletter, for instance. And so we get pushing that out there. And that, so we can engage all sorts of cohorts into this community of practice, not just, you know, the hip young person who's on Twitch and, you know, everything else. We can, we can get a lot, and yeah, don't get me started on TikTok because I'm not going to start that one. But, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of people, we can get a lot of people involved this sort of way. And I think some of those platforms are much more, better suited to two-way conversations. So the website is very much a one-way push, whereas things like Facebook and Instagram, and Discord are much more a uh, sort of a, a conversation. We've got a social media bubble, a social media community of practice who help design graphics, help create Instagram stories for us. And these, again, you know, young physicians are really interested in this sort of thing, both in pediatrics, but also knowledge dissemination. And so that social media bubble will put out posts, you know, every day of the week. And that, again, draws in the audience for us. It's also about being part of a team, I think. It's got to be about being a part of oh, a team gosh, because yeah, you've got a lot of people doing a lot of... It's it, it, you got a lot of people doing a lot of stuff there. And, um, you know, we talk... If you go back and listen to other episodes of this podcast, I think you'll hear a common theme, and that's that when you have people congregate around a shared purpose that they feel passionate about you know this model this communities of practice model can do absolutely stunning things absolutely and i don't i don't this is this is one of the best examples of this that i've ever seen in my life and i think to just give an example of what we did so when we started as i said there were only four of us and i realized there's a point in the website when i was writing three blog posts or a week and I was exhausted just trying to keep up. 
now I've got, you know, four months worth of blog posts just sitting in my inbox waiting to be edited and submitted and, and to be t tidied up and put on, on the website. I don't have to do, I don't have to write ever again if I didn't want to, because I've got people giving us information. The other thing is having a, a really great collaborative team means that we can do sprint work if we want to. So that, for instance, perhaps a key paper comes out or something happens, you know, in, in pediatric medicine and we need to get onto it straight away, then we'll say, okay, great. This is what we need to do. We'll split the team a team up into large sort of groups who may want to sort out infographics for do to summarize a paper, statisticians to look at the stats, and we'll get a you know a blog post together within you know twenty four hours that, for something that is essentially cutting edge and right in the beginning of the news cycle, rather than oh let's trawl our way through, make our way, and you know put something out three months later when it's all news. You know, it's interesting, Andy, as you talk, and I was listening because we've, we have a lot of learning designers that participate. And so we think about adult learning, which is basically what you described when you're thinking about these different tools. We have this sort of inner outer loop learning model with the same idea. Like you're not deciding where people are learning. You're sort of meeting them where they are and then bringing them into these different kind of differentiating learning pathways. And I love the fact that, um, a group of physicians and, and related fields are coming to that kind of learning design almost organically, right? You're sort of meeting people in the ways in which they want to engage, whether that's a physician who is comfortable on Discord or whether it's a long form kind of learning content. If you're thinking back in terms of all of these different channels that sort of just mushroomed with bubbles or just bubbled out, um, was that a lot through observation and you just sort of following where your users were or did you start thinking about... It, yeah. it was in some ways in that we could we found that there's a certain cohort that will only use Facebook mm -hmm. and yeah. things get shared much more easily through that platform, whereas physicians generally are very wary of using Facebook because of, you know, previous sort of crises. What I think is really interesting, though, is that it's wonderful meeting people where they are but in a sort of a speciality or a career like medicine, it means there are huge gaps in knowledge in that people will read what they're interested in. And so what they don't, you don't know what you don't know is those sort of, you know, known unknowns. And so the only way, if I, if we were to collate the entire DFTB um, back end, there are large parts of the medical curriculum that are missing. Mm -hmm. They're the things that people don't like talking about, which is generally mental health, and sexual health in, in and gynecological health in teenagers. And so one of the things that we've tried to do to address that is we've actually got a curriculum mapping team, again, another small little virtual community as part of our community that have gone through our back catalogue, collated the posts against the sort of the national curricula for UK and Australasia, because that's where we're mainly based, and said, okay, there's this huge gap. We don't have anything about pediatric gynecology, for instance. And then having fed that information up the chain, we then put that information out to the wider community and said, hey, we've really got nothing on peds gyne. Does anyone want to write about it for us? And then great. So then we get submissions from the bigger community who think, actually, this is my area of expertise. I can share this information with that virtual community, mm -hmm. meet them. And they didn't know they had this need one of the fascinating things is then when you read the comments and you read the feedback based on these posts, you say, yes, this is exactly what we needed. We just didn't even know we needed it. So, you know, there's a different, there's a, again, that meeting people where they are, but sometimes they don't know where they need to be. 
And that's a really hard space to be in sometimes. Yeah. Because it's very easy to write about COVID every single day. It's boring. <laughs> right. After a while, just sit picking, you know. So it's it's quite nice to be able to, you know, flesh things out a little bit. So are there any last thoughts you'd like to share about communities of practice, your work, experience, or any advice for our listeners around how to build out a really strong, trusted community of practice? So I think the biggest thing I learned at the start was really don't be afraid to talk to people. When I first start, joined Twitter back in 2009, I was just sitting there lurking, just listening to these all these conversations. And I had to do a, a research paper on an article related to trauma. And I had no idea how to judge the statistics for this paper. So what I did is I just reached out to the author electronically and said, hey, I have no idea what's going on here. I'm sure there's something important I'm missing. Could you help explain it to me? And then the, the researcher got back to me, looped in his statistician in the conversation, and I felt empowered to do that. And since one of the things that, you know, scientists love is they love their research being disseminated and people talking about what they're doing. And I found that just by asking conversation, asking people about what they're doing and asking people to explain things online has made things so much better. And so rather than just a private conversation via email, sometimes, you know, tagging people in here on, on Twitter when you've got a paper is, is a wonderful thing to do. Or let's say I'm doing an online journal club, we'll read through the paper, I'll make sure the author is tagged in. And then they join in that conversation. Yes, these people may be huge names in the world of medical research, but they're still people and they still love talking about their information and getting it out there. And I think my real key is, yes, start small, but don't be afraid to ask people, don't be afraid to talk to others and ask for their advice. The world generally in the sort of communities of practice is an amazingly friendly one. And I mean, look at us here, you know, who would have thought a year ago that we'd have you guys in the US talking mm-hmm. to me in Australia about communities <laughs> of practice weird. and where things where things sort of interweave with each other. And it's really just by asking simple questions and reaching out that we get to have these great conversations. And yes, this is you know, a little bit about that sort of medical communication and, and that medical community of practice that we've set up, but it's much more about that learning environment, community of practice, that even bigger community that we're all a part of. And yes, there are core aspects from the sort of the medical world that I can learn from, but there's learning and development teams throughout the entire world of education that I can learn from. And it's not being part of just that one core pediatric medicine you know, community that's important. I think it's actually having those disparate communities bringing them together and sharing those voices across communities. It's really, really important. So don't just engage with just your small group. Reach out there and get engaged with others. Amazing. Andrew, Tag, thank you so very much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, it was a pleasure. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Participate. My name is Dr. Julie Kane. My co-host is Mike Washburn, and we don't do this podcast alone. The Participate podcast team includes production by Jane Violette and Becky Latoff, with editing and music by Aaron Kane. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at participate.com. You can tweet us at participate. Mike can be found on Twitter at Mr. Washburn, and I can be found on Twitter at Julie Kane. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts 
or in Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. Thanks as always for listening. Until next time. Until next time.